Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 12. Verses 14 through 21, hear now the reading of God's holy word. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The grass withers, but the flower, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God, we confess that you are the source of all light. And that by your word, you give light to our souls. And so this morning, we ask that you would pour out upon us a spirit of wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, many of you know I'm I'm a reader. I hope you're a reader too. Um... I don't read as much fiction as I used to when I was younger, mostly read nonfiction, but I, I do dabble a little bit in, in reading fiction, and, and I've really enjoyed uh, reading some of Wendell Berry's uh, short stories and, uh, and novels, and so if you're, you're a fan of, of Wendell Berry, uh, you'll, you'll know what a, what a brilliant writer he is, but you'll also know about his Port William series set in a fictitious town, supposedly uh, based on the hometown that Barry lives in, a Port Royal. And in the Port William series of short stories and novels, there's a character that you would know, if you read those, of Burley Coulter. Burley Coulter. Now, when, when, uh, or Burley, rather. Burley Coulter. And when Burley was a young man, uh, he was pretty ornery. And we would say that he was a wayward young man. Uh, But as he grows older through the, the books, he matures. Not merely in his conduct, but also in his appreciation of where and with whom he lives. He grows to appreciate his hometown. He grows to appreciate the people that he lives with. Barry refers to this maturing process as convocation. Convocation, and he defines it this way, bear with me. He defines it as a multifaceted term that names both the fact of our membership and the process by which we come to know ourselves as members of an orchestrated 
patterned whole. Now, such membership, such convocation can be as narrow as the family, but it can also be as broad as the human race. But knowing that you're a member is far more elusive than being a member, or in the words of Burley Coulter himself, the way we are, we are members of each other. All of us. Everything. The difference ain't in who is a member and who is not, but in who knows it and who don't. <laughs> well, sadly, I think that many evangelical Christians today don't know it. They don't know how connected they are to their neighbor. We are, after all, all of us, made in the image of God. And therefore, all of us are worthy of honor. That's why Scripture teaches us we are to honor everyone. Hmm. This doesn't mean that we don't differ significantly in our opinions. We do. And it doesn't mean that we don't differ significantly in our choices as human beings. Whether they be right choices or they be oh-so-wrong choices, no doubt we do differ. But it does mean that we respect one another. This doesn't mean that we disregard our spiritual plight. It doesn't mean that we don't have a need for the gospel. We do. And it doesn't mean that we don't have a hope in eternal life. We as Christians do, in fact, believe the gospel. And we do, in fact, have hope of eternal life. But if you think about it, think about this with me. What is the gospel? Well, we could put it this way. The gospel is not a sales pitch to coerce or a mind trick to manipulate. The gospel is good news for our common, fallen human condition. I mean, that's why it's good news. It's good news for everyone on planet Earth. And we share the gospel, you and I as believers, we share the gospel not out of drudgerous duty. Well, then why do we do it? We share the gospel out of love for our neighbor. So when Paul teaches the church about the necessity of love within it, as we looked at last week, it should not surprise us then that he moves without it, out into life with our neighbor. To be quite clear, because Scripture is quite, quite clear on this, in this world, you and I are exiles. Look it up, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. We're exiles, but we are exiles in this world right now. Every single one of us here, we're exiles in this world, which means that we don't hide out on our homesteads or confine ourselves to a commune, but we love and we live with our neighbor as members of each other, all of us. God directed the Babylonian exiles similarly. As they were in Babylon, as exiles, they struggled as people of the promised land living in a foreign land. But rather than separate from society, do you know what God said to those exiles? Well, let me read it to you. Here's what God said. 
He said, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. See, God commanded the exiled Israelites to do the opposite of their exiled inclination. Tying their welfare to their neighbor's welfare. Isn't that interesting? And God calls us to do the same as exiles here on earth. Here in this foreign land, we are no less different. We must too seek the welfare of the place where God has providentially placed us. Living graciously. Living empathetically. Living amicably. Living humbly. Living honorably. And living virtuously with our neighbor. Knowing that our neighbor's welfare... According to what God said to the Babylonian exiles, knowing that our neighbor's welfare is whose welfare? Ours. Ours welfare too. And so I want to start here. I want to start with living graciously. Now the irony is, is that you and I as Christians, we may be persecuted for seeking our neighbor's welfare. For Christ's sake. While this is unreasonable, this shouldn't be unexpected. Because Jesus was really clear on this when he said to his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, such truth from our Lord Jesus, would make you want to curse the world, wouldn't it? (laughs) And yet, we're called to bless the world, not curse it. Why? Well, for one reason, we are a people who are not governed by our natural inclination, but inspiration. I know, I know, the world wants to tell you, you're merely an animal. And you are susceptible to all of the animal impulses that are there. (laughs) Eh, That's a lie. That's a lie from the devil that disguised himself first as an animal, as a snake. No, you're not a slave to your impulses. But rather, we in Christ, we are led, we are directed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are enabled and we're also empowered to respond like Christ who when reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And for this reason, we do not avenge ourselves But like the Lord Jesus, we leave it to the wrath of God. Indeed, 
vengeance is his alone. Somebody sent me an email. Now, I won't tell you the timing because it would tell you what was going on in our world. But let's just say it was in the last two years. Somebody sent me an email of a link to a podcaster. That would be your first warning. Beware of podcasters. A podcaster who was telling his audience, Now is not a time for love your neighbor, he said. Now is a time to fight. You've got to go out and you've got to fight for the reason why he was stirring it up. Don't you believe that now is the time for love your neighbor? I thought, well, that's from the pit of hell. <laughs> what a snake in the grass. Responded back, stupid. Yeah, I've tried to keep my email short, right? No. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the Lord Jesus listening to that podcast? What? What? That is utter nonsense. Think about it this way. Do you remember Stephen, the deacon? Do you remember that he was stoned to death? He was murdered. And do you remember what he was murdered for? Well, it's a long passage in Acts. He was murdered for preaching the gospel. And while the stones are hitting him, do you know what Stephen said? He didn't say, now's not a time for love your neighbor. Now's the time to fight back. Instead, Stephen, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. <laughs> that, that's the grace of God. Of course, Paul... Here in our passage, he's simply reiterating what our Lord Jesus said. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, what does Jesus mean by bless? That's a key word, isn't it? What does he mean by that? What does Paul, borrowing from Jesus, mean when he says bless? And I love the way that James Montgomery Boyce puts this. He says the word bless has different meanings. When we bless God, we ascribe to Him the praise that He is due. When God blesses us, He bestows blessing on us. So when we bless others, we ask God to bless them. It is in this sense that we are told to bless and not curse. And so through the enabling and powering of the Holy Spirit within us, we ask God, we literally, like Stephen, we pray to God, God, bless those who persecute us. And we ask and serve and pray that our humility and service will serve like the sage wrote in the Proverbs, like burning coals of conviction. That God will use our humility to burn like coals. And that the Lord will lead our enemy to repentance and faith in Christ. Hmm. And this we ask by the grace of God. Why? Because you're a recipient of the grace of God. I'm a recipient of the grace of God. Anyone who has professed faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 is really, really clear on this. It's all by the grace of God. And we who are undeserving of that grace... 
we serve as conduits of God's grace. We're a key part in people experiencing the grace of God. And so we serve as these conduits of God's grace to the undeserving, namely our enemies and our persecutors. And so living graciously with our neighbors, we see them, even our enemies, well, we see them through the lens of God's grace. And as we see our neighbors through God's grace, we can love them. And, believe it or not, we can live with them graciously and even empathetically. Now, living empathetically, when our neighbor rejoices, what do we do? We rejoice. When our neighbor weeps, what do we do? We, we weep, right? So, empathy is not dishonesty. Empathy is not flattery. Empathy is not faking it till you make it, but rather it is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. And yet so much of my flesh wars against this. So much of your flesh pushes back against this. Behaving appropriately then requires my engagement. It requires your attentiveness. But it also, more often than not, it means living locally. It means living with real, live people. You know... The people that theoretically are behind your Amazon app? (laughs) Somewhere out there? No. No. In order for me to have empathy, i got to be with real, live human beings. It's hard to have true empathy for someone you only know through a screen. For someone you know in person. Someone you physically, not digitally, encounter. And so we have to understand in order for us to have empathy, it requires interaction with real, live human beings. If not, here's the problem. We will grow numb to the needs of our neighbor. If we separate ourselves and see our neighbor as someone who is out there instead of right here with me, we will grow numb to their needs. This calls then for careful examination of your life and my life. What in my life keeps me from seeing my neighbor through the lens of God's grace and leads me from moving away from to moving to loving them in Christ? What's keeping me from that? Do I see my neighbor as an object? Do I see my neighbor as an obstacle? rather than a person made in the image of God like me. And I'm, I'm going to step outside of this, and I, I do this cautiously, uh, because I'm reminded of the sermon that C.H. Spurgeon, one of the great 19th century uh, preachers, preached on the concerns that he had over the bicycle at that time. Um, but I will say, if you go back and read Spurgeon's sermon on the bicycle, like he nails it, not about the bicycle, but about his concerns about culture moving too quickly and what we need to be cautious of. So I, do the, I say this with trepidation, but I want to, to be very clear on this. Is One of the increasing areas of concern that I have is how digital screens are impacting how we see other people. Studies are now revealing that the next generation, our children, increasingly lacks empathy. 
A dilemma that they're seeing now may be caused as much by their parents who are also impacted by these screens. And one of the studies cites that we are now learning screens can be addictive for both parents and children, but screen use can also lead to a warped sense of socialization that tricks the user into thinking that they are being social with posts or likes. With all of us distracted by this cheaper version of connection, we are getting less and less practice with true empathy. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, you see, I'm susceptible to this. You're susceptible to this. Grandparents, parents, children, grandchildren, we're all susceptible to this loss of empathy, which means that we have to be careful and we have to set boundaries because we're called to be an empathetic people. For many of us, of all ages, it would help if we would just turn it off, Put it down, unplug it, and engage with real, live, human beings. Remember those? They're they're here today, right? Put your tablet down for just a second. They're really all around us. They're here, real, live, human beings. And we need to understand that we need to engage with them. Because if you'll think with me for just a second, and I know some of you think I have gone off on a diatribe, and come with me. It's kind of fun. Um, but, <laughs> but think about it. Our Lord did not live behind a screen or trouble himself with trivia. So what did he trouble himself with? He reclined at table with tax collectors. He had supper with sinners. He drank with the undeserving He laughed and cried as only one who came to serve could do, living out empathy for the likes of me and you. And so we are called to be an empathetic people. But we're also called to be amicable. But it's hard to eat and drink with your neighbor when you're picking fights with them. In the era in which we live, it seems that evangelical Christians are known more for their opposition than their apposition. More for their discord than their harmony. I am totally put off with this wave of evangelicalism. And I hate that. That used to be a great word. But it's been robbed from us to go out and say, I need to have a political rant over something and I'm going to stamp Jesus on it. To maybe make it okay. Don't fall for it. It's absolute nonsense. But some may argue that we can live in harmony. How can we live in harmony if we're being persecuted? I want to get along with everybody, John. But, you know, I'm just under persecution. Hey, listen. The two are mutually exclusive. Don't confuse the two. True persecution comes from Christ-likeness. Not strife. Right? So if you are prone to discord, it's probably not persecution that you're encountering. It's probably called God's justice. (laughs) You're not being persecuted for being a problem. You're just being stupid. Paul cannot be more clear. And I quote from our passage today. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's like a mic drop 
verse, isn't it? Should anything else be said after that? As far as it depends on you, if it is within your power, live peaceably with every single human being you encounter. To live in harmony with one another is translated, it's a fascinating, fascinating word study in the Greek. What's translated in the ESV, the word harmony, actually means the same. That same, that word carries the connotation not of thinking the same, like we're all robots, but rather the same attitude toward one another. We're to have the same attitude as we see one another as fellow human beings. In other words, you and your neighbor were both created in the image of God. You and your neighbor both fell in Adam. You and your neighbor both need the gospel. But your neighbor won't listen to the gospel if you're a jerk. And so we need to learn to live in harmony with others. Other fallen human beings who need to hear the gospel just like we heard it. This, of course, requires humility. This requires humility. Of course, you're thinking at this point, yeah, it's one thing to know it, John. It's another to live it. Well, I know we're Presbyterians and we don't normally do this, but I'm going to say, Amen. You're right. You're exactly right. Paul puts it practically, doesn't he? He says, do not be haughty. Never be wise in your own sight. Or another translation says, don't be conceited. Nothing is more obnoxious than a self-righteous Christian, except for maybe someone who's full of himself or herself. You know the one, right? The, the, the one who will not listen. The one who is always right, often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> but sadly, many Christians who know the truth and have believed the truth of the gospel distort it because of their overzealous opinions on everything. And I mean everything from mask mandates. Let's get fired up about that. To vaccines. Let's storm the Capitol over that. To TV positions. To TV personalities. To celebrities that tell me what I should believe. To the economy. To the environment. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are some of us who have absolutely failed in our witness to unbelievers because of our overzealous opinions over nonsense, over trivia, over absolutely something that our Lord Jesus would shake His head and go, wow, you are so off mark. Wow, I'm going to try to regain my composure. How can a people saved by grace so often behave without it? And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, and I'm, I stand before you as sinner. I behave so often without grace. Mm. The remedy, the remedy, Paul says, is a reality check. He says, associate with the lowly. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? He says, here's your reality check. If you have consumed yourself with all of this stuff, 
And you're metaphorically punching your neighbor in the face with your opinions of all of that stuff that doesn't matter. Here's your reality check. Associate with the lowly. Of all the things that we think are so important, all the things that we want to fight over, they're brought into perspective when we learn to serve the needy. The word translated associated with, and I love this, literally means to be carried away with. To be carried away with the lowly. The word implies intimate involvement with the underprivileged. Those who are less fortunate than you. But those who barricade themselves behind walls of privilege cannot hear the cry of their neighbor. Christian, let us learn from Jesus. Let us be known not out of our selfish ambition... Or our conceit. But in humility. Paul says to the church at Philippi. You learn how to count others. As more important than yourselves. In other words. Let us have this mind. Among ourselves. Which is ours in Christ Jesus. Who became a man. He humbled himself. He lived a life of humility. And obedience even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And so let us have the mind of Christ among us and let us live humbly together in the church. Let us live humbly outside of the church. Now, such humility requires and involves loving and living with those who do evil. And they may even do evil to us. Yet there is a temptation to think that absence from evil, from those who do evil, prevents evil. You've heard this, right? This is like where I grew up in the 1980s, right? (laughs) Evangelical Christianity. If you'll just separate yourself from everything and everybody, that'll keep you from evil. And you know what I found? I found that when I separated myself from everybody, I was still there. I am the problem, right? My sinful flesh is the problem. That's not what Paul is saying here. As Jesus said of Himself, the Son of Man came eating. And drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so whether our neighbor does evil evil or intends evil for us, our response is not absence, but presence. If Stephen had run for the hills, he would not have been stoned. If Stephen had run for the hills they would have never heard the gospel. The world is watching. And so, brothers and sisters, do what is honorable in the sight of all. Not my words, the word of God. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. And this is, is, is relevant to us today, just as it was when it was written, right? We are the means by which the world will hear the gospel. Therefore, conduct counts. A Christian ethic, to use that word, a Christian ethic is essential. I know, I know, we want to get all angry and and anxious and and go fight because, you know, culture's taking that Christian ethic away from us. Hey, brothers and sisters, here's what I've witnessed. Christian ethics got a problem because Christians have lost the Christian ethic. Your culture is not the problem. 
faithfulness to our Lord Jesus is. In financial matters, we should set the standard. As Paul explains to the Corinthians, we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. In employment matters, we should seek to do what is right. James tells us we better pay what is fair. In employment matters, we should display the best work ethic. To where our employer says, well, you, you know he's a Christian. <laughs> I got a couple of them here. They're the hardest working folks I've ever seen in my life. They come early. They work hard. They show up late. There must be something to this Christianity. <laughs> Why? Because we work as unto the Lord instead of men. Paul told the, told the Colossians. In matters of authority, we should set the standard on subjection and obedience. In our minds, in our minds, we should hate evil so much that we are fixing our hearts on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. And so... In case you think I have lost my mind, let me make it clear. The world is an evil place. But becoming like it is not the answer. In fact, it's not even an option for you. It's not even an option for me. We are really exiles living in a land that is not our own. But in God's sovereign purpose, you and I, we're right here. Or to quote Burley Coulter. Whenever anyone would ask, Burley, where are you? He would always answer, right here. <laughs> well, so are you. So am I. I'm, I'm right here. This is where God in His providence has put me. It's where He has put you. And we, as salt and light, we are to be the seasoning and the shining light of Christ to the world. Just as there is no churchless Christian, there is not a cloistered one either. We are to be living in the world, but not of it. Not overcome by evil, but overcoming evil with good. For we who were once slaves to evil have been redeemed by our righteous atoning sacrifice, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is of supreme virtue, and He became sin for us, died for us, rose again from the dead for us, that we might be able to stand before God clothed in His righteousness and that we might be able to live with our neighbor virtuously. And so we love. And yes, here's the hard part. We live with our neighbor for Christ's sake. For you and I have been loved by a greater love than ours. And because of that, it is through His love that we love others. The Psalms, or rather the hymn sings, Love divine, all excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us Thy humble dwelling. All Thy faithful mercies crown. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, You know us and You know that we are but dust. And yet, in your infinite wisdom, you created us 
in your image. And so, we reflect your glory. And yet, fallen in sin, you had mercy upon your elect and have redeemed us by your grace through faith in Christ. And so, we, your people who are called by your name, we ask, O oh God, give us the mind of Christ. O oh God, lead us. Enable us, encourage us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. For you have loved us more than we could ever love. Oh God, help us to be a loving people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.